The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I'm Maggie Taylor, and I'm going to be doing our scripture reading, which comes from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your name, your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. The Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. There we go. All right, sorry. Sounded like R2-D2 just hacked the church. How are we doing? Good, good. This morning, we will be in the... Woo! I'm struggling today. All right. This morning, we will be... (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Listen. If y'all clap for me just because I took my mask off, that means I need help. Okay, but I appreciate it. I appreciate the encouragement. <laughs> okay, this morning we are in the enthronement psalms. Enthronement psalms focus on the kingship of God, how he rules, how he uses his power. That's what the enthronement psalms are about. You could summarize the psalms. The psalms are a collection of poetry, prayers, and music. And songs. And this morning, this prayer that God hears is about how God uses power, how He rules. Now, here's the thing we know how people rule, don't we? People rule often, not always, but often with greed and manipulation and control and fear. We know how people do it. The question is how does God do it? And how do the people of God fare under the rule of God? When I was a kid, I remember for about a year or two, my little sister, her favorite movie was Matilda. Does anybody remember Matilda? Any Matilda fans in here? Okay. Matilda tells the story of a little girl who grows up in an emotionally unhealthy and neglectful family. And while she grows up in that family, she discovers that she actually has these supernatural abilities. And Matilda goes to an elementary school called Crunchum Hall Elementary. That's quite the name, isn't it? Crunchum. Um, Miss Agatha Trunchbull, a.k.a. The Trunchbull, leads the school, and she does so by instilling great fear into the teachers and the children. She even goes so far as to mistreat some of the children. And when the story introduces the trunchbull, 
It becomes very clear that the children have to walk on the eggshells at all moments throughout the day. Matilda feels lucky because even though the Trunchbull is her principal, the Trunchbull is mean and cruel, who has, she's created a culture of fear and intimidation, uh, Matilda still loves going to school because of her kindergarten teacher, Miss Honey. Miss Honey's students love her. They can be themselves around her. She defends them. She's fair and just. Miss Honey is the combination of everything we all remember about our favorite teachers. Miss Honey is kind and gentle, and, and she draws out the best in her students as they learn. And for many, her class becomes a safe haven for students as they have to deal with the toxic stress of Agatha Trunchbull. Eventually, towards the end of the movie, spoiler alert, the Trunchbull is put out of the school, and eventually Miss Honey becomes the principal, and immediately the school rejoices because they know how Miss Trunchbull uses her authority. They know what Miss Honey is like when she has power. They know that the, that the entire school is, like, is anything like Mrs. Honey's class. The school will thrive. And the reason I tell you this this morning is because I want us to see what it's like when God is the principal, when he's in charge. So many in our world believe that God is more like the trunchbull. They believe that he is unjust and cruel and harsh and controlling. But when you read the scriptures, we realize that God is far more like Miss Honey than he is the trunchbull. And when he is in charge, when he rules, when he governs, his children thrive. And so this morning, we are going to see what it's like for God to be the king, how God exercises kingship, and that God is not any kind of king. He is a holy king. Repeat after me. Say holy. holy. He is a holy king. And so my main thought for you this morning is this. It is that the holiness of God is good news. Okay? The holiness of God is good news. Now, I want to preface this by saying this. It is likely that many of us in this room and definitely thousands, if not millions of people in our society have had the concept of holiness used as a weapon against us. Does anybody resonate with that? It has been used to conjure up fear and intimidation and control and shame and legalism. But what I hope to show you this morning is that those who use holiness as a weapon rather than a healing agent... They completely misunderstand holiness. The holiness of God is good news, family. So this morning, I want us not to reinvent holiness, but to reclaim it. Okay? I want us to reclaim holiness so that we can use it for the healing and the restoration of a broken and ruined world. Amen? God's holiness is his commitment to righteousness, and not just that, but it is also his transcendence. Look at verse 3 and 5 with me real quick. At the end of verses 3 and 5, each of those passages end with the phrase, holy is he. Holy is he. Verse 9 also ends in a very similar way. If you go all the way to the end of the passage, the last line says, For holy is the Lord our God. 
So if we're doing basic kind of interpretation, now we know the main thread of our text this morning is the holiness of God. It is that God is a holy king. And so the writer is telling us that what comes before these statements, holy is he, holy is he, for the Lord our God is holy, what comes before these statements demonstrates what the holiness of God looks like to show us what it is. Verse 1 says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim are the kind of the warrior angels. These are the, the celestial beings that come before God on his throne. They were also there. Some of them were there when Adam and Eve was exiled from the garden. He says, He is above the cherubim. The very next line says, the Lord our God is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. So this repetition, the writer, the psalmist is using to associate holiness with transcendence. God ranks above any other conceivable being, humans or angels, that the way that he is God is incomparable. He is in his own category that no one else can fit into. One Old Testament scholar says that in ancient Judaism, holiness meant the radical otherness of God. Say otherness. That yes, God uses anthropomorphisms, right, to relate to his people, to show us what he's like. But on a deeper level, there is actually nothing and no one God can be compared to. He's in his own category. And this is the constant refrain of the Old Testament where, where the writers would say, there is no one like our God, over and over again. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. There is no one like him. And so the writer is telling us something about the way God rules and uses his power and governs, that God rules with a holy disposition, that God's rule and his reign are unlike anyone else's in the ancient world. And even today, when new leaders come into power, we sometimes say to ourselves, I hope this one's not like the last one. And the psalmist is saying, God is not like any of them. And that's a good thing because it means that he is so different and so other that no one can bring the kind of flourishing and thriving that God can. No one can rule like God. No one can protect like God. No one can love like God. Listen, family, no one can love you like God loves you, despite people's best efforts. And that doesn't mean all of their loves are pointless, but it means that none of them come close to what God does for you, has done for you, and is going to continue doing for you for all of eternity. There is no one who can love like God can. That is part of his holiness. His holiness affects the way that he loves do you see how the holiness of God is good news, family? We need a holy God, one who is above all the corruption and the mess, not distant from it, right? But above it, one who has not been tainted by it, one who can see with pure clarity and objectivity. This is vital because you and I are often guided by tainted perspectives, experiences, agendas, hidden motives, and, and even a blindness that often keeps us for, from seeing how things really are. We need a God who is outside of that. The holiness of God is good news, family. It means we have access to a transcendent Father who can see what we cannot see. Because I work with children, I'm always trying to tell them, hey, 
there's something I know that you don't know, but I, I'm, I'm trying to protect you. So when I tell you don't hit that kid, right, or don't do this thing, they may not be able to see why it's a bad thing. But I can because I'm outside of that, right? I can see what's going on. And God does this on an infinite level. He can see the mess that we can't see because it's all we know. This is a God that we need. It's not just, listen, the, the holy God isn't just the cards we've been dealt. It's not just, oh, I got, that's who he is and I got to put up with him, right? It's not just who we're stuck with. This is who we need. We need a God to be preeminent, to see the error of our ways from the outside. Even when our foolishness makes perfect sense to us, let's be real. There's a lot of our foolishness. We're like, this, this makes sense. And God's like, no, that is not normal. That is not normal to me. Sin and, and, and destruction and darkness is not normal to God. We need someone who is outside of the cultural idols of our time. Whether it's white supremacy, whether it's Christian nationalism, whether it's misogyny or classism or xenophobia or materialism or greed, we need a holy God who can come outside of that and say, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how I created the world. The holiness of God wakes us up to the fact that there's something different out there. That's what holiness means. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be radically other. It reminds us that there is something different than the way we're all doing this thing called life where, you know, the, the typical person's like, you know, I got to get mine, and, and I got to do me, and, and everything is about me and my own self-seeking of pleasure and fulfillment. When, and when we project that onto society, it creates systems of mistreatment because everything's about you. And if everything's about you, then you will crush anybody who gets in your way. We need a God who is outside of that. The holiness of God gives us hope. And it says that, hey, there's actually another way to live and to be and to exist that doesn't lead to more emptiness and sorrow and destruction. That the way that the world is is not the way it has to be, family. Holiness is about hope. Sometimes we see holiness as constricting, but God sees it as something that helps us break through the ceiling of darkness and sin. Sometimes we see holiness as bondage. But from God's vantage point, sin is the real bondage. Sin is constricting. We don't think it is, but it is. Because it actually makes us slaves to our own desires. Sin does not allow you to operate outside of your own self-seeking desires. You keep, sin will have you, you keep hitting a ceiling. You're in bondage. And the world thinks that it's free. And when from God's vantage point, the world, apart from the grace of God, is still in chains. You just can't always see him. When God calls us to be holy as he is holy, family, please listen. He's not trying to control you. That's what we think sometimes. That's kind of how holiness has been pitched to us growing up is that God's just trying to control us. He doesn't want us to have any fun. He doesn't want us to have any joy. But he's not trying to control you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to help you get out, to break the ceiling, to, to get out of the toxic assembly line that the world is in. We're all making the tools of our own destruction. Sin will have you doing all the work for your own destruction. Sin will have you digging your own grave. 
It will have you destroying yourself. And it's a holy God that gives us a way out of that family. Holiness is a way out of a life of darkness and injustice. And this has implication for the people of God because when God calls us to be holy as he's holy, he, he's calling us to have a similar kind of holiness, to be incomparable, to, to be transcendent, to transcend. Now, not condescend, right? Sometimes our misunderstanding of holiness causes us to be condescending, where we, where, we, where, you know, we act like we're superior to people. Listen, you, just because you're saved does not mean you're better than the person down the street. At all. At all. They, you need Jesus still just as much as they do. We're not superior to anybody. We don't look down upon people. We don't patronize anyone. Holiness is not about being better than people. It is about being radically other. Radically different. Communal holiness is being a community that does justice differently. Let's be honest, fam. The world is trying to do justice, and it is not doing a good job. It still perpetuates injustice. The world uh, it needs a different kind of love. You and I both know how desperately our world needs a different kind of love, a holy love, one that's not toxic, one that doesn't use people. One that's not conditional. We need a holy love family. This is what our world needs. And they're looking for it. The question is, are we going to be that for them? Verse 4 says, the strength of the king loves justice. This is liberating. Because it means you don't have to twist God's arm to do justice. You don't have to bribe him. You don't have to offer him money and resources. He loves doing justice. He delights in it. He does it for free. You got to pay him to do it. This week, I'm going to brag on somebody. This week, Judy Doris was helping organize a lot of our items in the kids' room and nursery. And, and she's been at Koinonia every day this week. And she's done an amazing job. And, and I remember asking her, she also helped us launch a nursery a few months back, and I remember asking her, like, hey, you have done so much. Is there any way we can, like, compensate? Because, you know, Cornelia, we, we believe in compensation, okay? We believe in paying people, all right? And I remember asking her, like, hey, is there any way we can compensate you? And here's what she says to me. She says, no, this is what I love. And it ministered to my heart because it reminded me of how much God loves justice. He loves it so much that even when we offer to pay him back or to somehow give him something in return, he says, no, this is what I love. This is how God feels about justice. The strength of the king loves justice. He loves doing justice. You don't have to make him do it. And this is refreshing because we live in a world where leaders have to be forced to do justice. You got to bribe them. You got to get them to sign a petition. You got to send them a bunch of letters just to get them to, to attend to something. All the while, God loves doing it. You don't have to, you don't have to bend him. You, you don't have to bribe him. You don't have to twist his arm. He does justice. He loves doing it. And here's the thing about love is you don't have to be told to do something that you love. You just naturally do it. And this is how God feels about justice, about making things right. And then the psalmist says, you have established equity. Ooh, that's a word right there. That's a whole sermon right there. I can go home right now. <laughs> Family, how often have you heard the concept of equity 
as being associated with holiness. I'll wait. Never, right? We almost never. We, we don't usually hear holiness and equity in the same sentence. And there's a reason for that, by the way. There are theological institutions and ideologies that don't want us thinking of God's commitment to equity when we think of holiness. They want to keep holiness abstract and theoretical when in the Psalms, the writers associate very clearly holiness with equity, saying that this is one of the expressions of holiness, is equity. Family, look at me. We cannot be a holy community without practicing equity in our world, without distributing resources to those in need, without treating people the way God does. This is one of the many ways in which God is holy, is he is committed to equity. Then it says, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob or in Israel. Now, we talk about justice a lot, and that's great. It's all throughout the Bible. I just talked about it. But it's also very important that we define righteousness, justice and righteousness. And to remember that justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. Justice often is a little bit broader. It has to do with systems, right? Righteousness is often more personal. Righteousness, the word in the Old Testament, when you see the word righteousness, it means different things in different passages, in different contexts. But for the most part, the word righteousness comes from the word zedekah in the Hebrew. Everybody repeat after me. Say zedekah. Zedekah means, righteousness means a standard of right relationship with people. Okay, it's not just doing the right thing, even though that's that's true. It's not just having, you know, being morally upright. Righteousness in the Bible is treating people right. And I have to say this as clearly as I can. If we do not treat people right, we are not righteous. We are unrighteous. The church cannot call itself a righteous community if it does not treat people right. That's what righteousness means. It means you and I have to do right by people. This is why many are leaving the church in this season. It's not the only reason, but this is the dominant reason that people are leaving the church right now. Because they're not leaving the church because the church is too holy. They're not. I see y'all laughing like, yeah, yeah. They're leaving because the church is just like everybody else. They're leaving because the church is not holy. They're leaving because the churches uh, are often operating with greed and control and are power hungry and perpetuate the same class, race, and gender hierarchies that the world does. That's not holiness. That's the same old foolishness. We need something different. The hope of holiness is that there is a transcendent God and a transcendent community that does not align itself with the political and cultural and sexual ideologies of the day, but is radically other. People in our world are looking for this. Do you know how desperately people want a world where they're not treated like commodities to be used? Where they're not exploited, where they're not looked down upon because of their biological or sociological distinctions? People are desperate for this. The hope of holiness, the good news of holiness, is the hope of a better world that is inaugurated by God where he starts with his covenant community first. 
This is a community that stands out for its radical love and treatment of human beings. God's people must be defined by this kind of holiness. The first time the concept of holiness is fleshed out or explained in the Bible is in the book of Leviticus. That's the first time holiness is mentioned. But it is the first time God shows his people that this is what a tangible expression of holiness looks like. And in its expression, it means to do justice and righteousness. This is why the psalmist uses these terms. Because they know this is what God means when he says, I'm holy. In Leviticus 19, God says to the Israelites, right before he's about to give them kind of a a list of commands of how to treat their neighbors, he says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So that's kind of the preamble of holiness and and the tangible expression. God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then in Leviticus 19.2, he lists out what it looks like. Sometimes we think holiness is not tangible, that it's just kind of so high up that we can't reach it. And God in his word gives you actual tangible expressions of holiness. And he lists them out. He says, don't keep all the food for yourselves. Share with others. Share the excess that you have. He says, remember the poor and the immigrant. Don't push them away. Bring them in. Don't steal or be deceitful or defraud one another. Don't exploit your workers. Be mindful of those with special needs. Yes, the Bible says that. Be fair and just in the way that you deal with others. Don't slander or seek revenge or remain bitter against one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what it means to be holy. This is justice and righteousness. This is what a holy community looks like. Holiness does not always mean just reading scripture and praying all the time. And that's great. That's vital to the Christian life. Please don't hear me not encouraging that, okay? These are great practices, but these are not what distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world. There are all kinds of faiths that read their their scriptures every day and that pray every day. That's not what separates Christians. What makes a community holy and distinct is the radical prioritization of justice and dignity and righteousness for all people. Just systems and treating people right, how God would treat them. Do you see how holiness is good news for the world? It heals and restores. It doesn't hoard or control. Another expression of God's holy kingship we see in verses 6 through 8. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Isn't that amazing? God is a king who answers his people. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't make us lobby for his attention. We don't have to sign petitions to get, his, to get his ear. We don't have to schedule a meeting to meet up and talk with God. He hears us when we call upon him. And this is good news for the lowly, especially. In the ancient world, you had to offer something of monetary value to get a hearing with the gods. And if you did not have anything, the gods would not hear you. And yet, it is Yahweh who hears us and answers us simply when we call upon him. This is also an extension of his holiness. This is what separated and made God, made Yahweh distinct from all the ancient false gods, is that he actually answers his people. He's a God who speaks. 
Verse 7, it says, he spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, O God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. One thing that is unique about the God of the Bible is that he unfathomably loves his people, but he will not let that love cause him to look the other way with their foolishness and their evil. It says, it says he was an avenger of their evil deeds. This, this phrase evil deeds is almost always associated with some kind of unjust practice, with some kind of mistreatment going on. And so the writer is saying, yes, God loves his people, but he also loves everyone else and will not let his people harm everybody else. This is what the Israelites believed at one point. They thought that because they were children of Abraham, that God was in relationship with them. They could just do whatever they wanted. And in the prophets, God criticizes Israel for the way they treat the poor and the immigrant and the foreigner. John the Baptist calls this out in the New Testament. When he speaks to the Jews, uh, you know, they're saying, okay, what, what must we do to repent? He says, if you have an extra tunic, share with the one who has none. To tax collectors, he says, don't take more money than you're supposed to. To the soldiers, he says, don't use your power to extort citizens. And to everyone, he literally almost literally says, don't think that because you are children of Abraham that you don't need to bear in keeping fruit with repentance. God's relationship with you will not allow him to look the other way if you are harming people. God's holiness will not allow him to stand by while people are being mistreated. I want to say that one more time. God's holiness will not allow him to stand by while people are being mistreated. It doesn't matter whether you're an individual, whether you're a church, whether you're an organization. God will not tolerate it forever. Justice and righteousness is coming. We cannot just treat people the way that we want to and think God is not going to avenge that. It is in the scripture. He is an avenger of the evil deeds. He stands up for those who are harmed and abused and disenfranchised. And just because we are the people of God does not mean we get away with that. This is why we need a holy God. Because we need someone who's going to unwaveringly fight for our dignity and against our mistreatment. By the way, this is why they killed Jesus. They wanted a leader and ruler like all the others, but one that would put them on top, right? But Jesus had a holy justice and a holy love that some people were not fond of. He treated the marginalized right. He did justice and righteousness for those whose society thought were all the wrong people. The poor, the disenfranchised, the beaten down, the outcast, the marginalized. His love for them was an extension of his holiness. Family. Even the death of Jesus was holy. Nobody died like Jesus died. Jesus prays for his enemies. He comforts the broken all while being executed. There's a reason Jesus' death is the most famous in history because no one died like he did. When Jesus was dying, he was welcoming a criminal into the kingdom of God as he himself was hung on a cross. The man next to him was receiving the death penalty, and while they were both dying, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. While Jesus, while Jesus was dying, he was already taking people to heaven with him. Isn't that amazing? There is nobody like him. 
There's nobody like Jesus. That's why in his earthly, earthly ministry, people gravitated toward him because they had never met anyone like him. It was actually his holiness that drew people towards him. There was nobody like Jesus. They were stunned by Jesus, the way he healed people and restored the broken, the way he treated people differently than the political and religious establishment, the way he forgave people. He had mercy on people who the world was throwing away. There is no one like Jesus, family. No one has loved you more than him. No one has treated you better than him. No one has defended you more than Jesus has. Listen, every time we do something wrong, you know who's accusing us before the Father? Satan. And every time Jesus is defending us, he is speaking on our behalf. Nobody defends you more than Jesus does. No one loves you more than Jesus does. No one loves you like Jesus does. There's no one who is for you like Jesus is for you. And this is my continual prayer for Koinonia, that there would be no one like God's people. That we would be a strange community in a dark world. This is what the world needs, fam. They need a holy God and a holy community, one that is distinct, one that is bent on human flourishing and holiness and justice and righteousness. They are looking for a community that is radically other. They are looking for a God who is radically other. They need Christians who are radically other. The question is, will we be that for them? Let's pray. God, we love you so much. God, if any of my words have failed this morning, I, I pray that you would forgive me and that you would make up for that with your Holy Spirit. God, help us to be holy as you are holy. Not in a legalistic sense. but a holiness that promotes human flourishing. God, your word is so good. This is the kind of king you are. You are a king who does justice and righteousness. You're forgiving. You hear your people when they call upon you. There is no one more fit to rule than you. And we love you for it, God. It was to appreciate what it means to be holy. Also, help us to have a grace. Sometimes, often, a lot of times, we fail to be holy, God. And your word says that your kingdom is a kingdom of grace and forgiveness. And there is mercy. And that even your mercy and your forgiveness are holy, God. Pour down your Holy Spirit on us. Help us to retain your word and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.